Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. People are morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, didn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> the man's tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. And you snake through the city, what, immersing yourself in the sights, sounds, and for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello, and at last we have some sunshine. I'm looking out of the window here at St Paul's in West Hackney. We're in the vestry. The crucifix is silhouetted against a beautiful green sunlit vista. With me, Rosie Spinks, who's working with the North London Action for the Homeless Organisation. Doing what exactly, Rosie? Um, Well, first and foremost, I'm a volunteer, but I also maintain a storytelling blog, which uh, features long-form Q&As with uh, the service users of North London Action for the Homeless. Now, the fact that we've launched into the technical vocabulary for the journalist tells us probably quite a lot already. And indeed, we've had a fight for the mic even before we started here. You're very much used to interviewing people, so you're probably far more comfortable being in my seat than in yours right now. Yes, definitely. It feels it feels weird to be on the other side of the microphone today. <laughs> so I, I suppose we could call this a long-form Q&A, couldn't I? What, what tips have you picked up from doing long-form Q&A with your service users that, that I should be employing right now? What would you think of first when interviewing someone? Um, well, you know, someone said to me the other day that they they liked reading the piece because it really felt like a conversation and not um, a set of questions that I had come up with. And that's that's really how I operate in these interviews. I I just sort of start with, why do you come to NLH and how long have you been coming? And then I, I haven't done any interviews with a set of questions ahead of time. So I like to, at least for this project, so I like to keep it um, conversational and sort of flowing and ask follow-up questions, that type of thing. So our, our process is perfectly matched, but your subjects are people who, as the name suggests, have been homeless or are homeless. Uh, typically, what, what sort of situation do you first meet people in? 
Yeah, well, I'll start by saying that um, the name is sort of misleading in, in calling it North London Action for the Homeless, which is something that um, I kind of like about the blog because it kind of dispels that notion that, you know, once you're homeless, you're always homeless because people are, are in varying states of, you know, of employment, housing. They may have been homeless five years ago and found this place and found a community here and they still come. So certainly not everyone I speak to or interview is homeless, but um, most of them are what, you know, this term sort of makes me uncomfortable, but what the government would call vulnerable people. So people on benefits or who are unemployed, looking for work, struggling with health issues, addiction, um, homeless, formerly homeless, you know, living in hostels, all, all range of, uh, all range of experiences. But, um, how I usually encounter them is just simply through serving meals and talking to other volunteers who make friends here and find cool stories or service users that have great stories. Um, it's, I try and keep it as organic as possible. Although I, I do ask for suggestions from the managers here and other volunteers. Well, there's several directions we could go off there. I suppose I'm curious, though, just to pause for a second and ask why you find the idea of vulnerability or the term vulnerability less than agreeable. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's it's. I do use the term, so I guess I haven't found a better one yet. But um, it's it's just sounds sort of. Um, the, the way that the government just labels it, but then I feel doesn't do enough to address it, is kind of it kind of annoys me. Give, give us an example of that. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, just benefit culture and, and people who who are on the dole, so to speak, and, and don't want to be, and th- their class is vulnerable but aren't really empowered by the government or a job center to get out of that situation. So it's, it's almost like a simultaneous label and... Uh, insult almost to me because they they're they're just it's like they're vulnerable and they're not anything else you know whereas a lot of people are vulnerable for reasons that are out of their control or they just you know they don't have a safety net or um so i just wish we could find a more sort of less catch-all term more nuanced so it sounds as though you're suggesting that they are in part uh, and some people are in part vulnerable because they've been made vulnerable by the system surrounding them or the lack of a system maybe yeah i would i would agree with that actually yeah you know we all come from such such different backgrounds and so one of the things i've learned from this project is just uh any 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 kind of stereotyping or generalizations you can make about homelessness or addiction are just shockingly disproved by speaking to maybe five homeless people because I, I, you'd be hard-pressed to find any human that, that wouldn't, given what some of these people have gone through, that wouldn't be, you know, uh, in a similar place. We, we, there's only, you know, so much we can take as humans. And some people, if you don't have a safety net or you, you, you have a series of, you know, really bad situations in your life or you had a, a, a childhood where you just weren't equipped to deal with life's trials, like... Anyone, given those situations, would would have a hard time overcoming it. So, yeah, actually, that's one of the first things that I always feel as well. There isn't really any difference between a homeless person and oneself, except the sort of mental constructs that we maybe put up as 
non-homeless people to to process that on a day-to-day basis we like to think that we're separate but in fact uh, well I mean let's take uh, us for example we're we're both uh, probably self-employed people working in the arts which is not the safest of uh, uh, you know journalists um, freelance what's the uh, the margin for error how much would need to happen to to one of us for us to find ourselves in that vulnerable category absolutely Um, and that's something I'm very aware of you know I'm quite young and just sort of at the beginning of my my career and um you know if if i've had you know some some rough mishaps in the past year or so in terms of theft and and things you know where but i that where i got through it by either having a credit card or having you know a parent that could loan me some money while i while i made up funds and so many people just don't have that so you know for me the margin of error in the past couple years has been you know very slim, but um, but I'm lucky because I do have a safety net. So so that idea um, is something that you know. Going back to the vulnerable idea, like it's it's I I'm I don't make a lot of money, but I wouldn't call myself a vulnerable person, or the government wouldn't call me that because of just you know the safety net that I have, both financially and emotionally and, and all of these things. So um, it's just, it's such a fine line, you know. We'll come back, I suspect, and talk about networks and the importance of those. Can we talk a little bit more about who you are, uh, which part of Wales are you from? <laughs> well, the part called California. Um, I grew up in California to with two British parents. So um, I'm actually a, a UK citizen, though I don't sound like one. And um, I moved here a couple of years ago, and specifically to um, Hackney about a year and a bit ago. So American culturally, but uh, by nationality, I'm I'm also British. And which part of uh, Britain are you? Are you a Londoner by heritage, or? Um, gosh, I I never know what to say to that question. Uh, my my father grew up in rugby, and my mother grew up all around. She was an army brat, so. Um, so. Uh, no, really. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's pretty fair. But when you when you first meet people who, um, let's say, somebody perhaps who is newer to being in a very vulnerable situation, perhaps having recently become homeless, or do, do you think they see themselves as vulnerable? I yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it, I think it it really depends on the spirit of the person and and what they. Um, it's it's a hard question to ask, and I actually our most recent subject, Roger, I did ask him that question um, because he brought up the term vulnerable people, and um, I sort of felt okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him if he sees himself that way, and um, he said he did, which which I was sort of um, I was sort of su- impressed and and surprised by almost because um, he was able to speak so so cognitively about his his position and and why he was vulnerable I don't know if I could do that talk about you know what my greatest weakness is and he was very aware of it which is something that really impressed me I wonder about that just the the process of talking to people when they're in let's say not the strongest Mm -hmm. moment of their life Mm -hmm. perhaps uh, what what is the purpose of asking them to tell their stories at, at that moment and I suppose alongside that I wonder whether I wonder how fair it is to 
ask them to tell stories at, at that moment. Yeah, I think I think you really have to gauge the situation. Um, I obviously ask myself that question often because that's the nature of my job, and you know the 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 reason I was wary to start this project is because I didn't want to come off as you know forcing people to tell me things they didn't want to tell me so often when I start an interview I say you have the power in this in this context for this project whatever you tell me is what um, I I can say so uh, that's something it was it was intentional to have the blog be a Q&A format rather than a sort of narrative uh, written article because I wanted I didn't want anyone to be able to say I was misconstruing the words of these people and I really wanted to put their words as the main voice of or the main text of what was being said so you know other than the 300 word description that I write of each person um, it's 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 edited minimally usually the interviews last about 30 minutes and I probably use um, 70% of the actual transcription so that is I think by giving them that power and making sure they know that and sort of emphasizing that it's a Q&A, so whatever your answers are is what people will know. You don't have to tell me more or less than that, than what you want um, is one way to deal with it. And then is that fair? I mean, for some people, um, having someone taking a concerted interest in their trials and their struggles when they walk up and down the street every day and a lot of people ignore them, um, I think is actually a really... I hope is a really positive feeling, and um, you know it's it's wonderful to get recognition for a project like this uh, from outside sources. But what makes me the most gratified is when I see the subjects, you know, with a hard copy, and they're showing it to people, and they like it, and they're you know they, they text me or they're not mad at me or that's they text me saying they like it. So that's. Um, Unlike other journalistic endeavors where my my allegiance would be to the reader, um, first and foremost, in this project, it's a little bit different because 100% my allegiance is to the subject and respecting their wishes and protecting what they don't want known and, and sort of putting out there what they do want known about them. And during those interviews, there inevitably will come times when as you say, sort of pent up issues, emotions mm-hmm. come flooding forth, they're being invited forth. Yeah. How do you go about handling those times? Um, it can kind of catch you off guard. Um, my most recent subject, Roger, told me about two thirds of the way into the interview that, you know, he'd two years ago been in this pretty vicious attack and he had several scars from stab wounds and he I think it caught me more off guard than him because it was all of a sudden he was you know showing me his scars and um it was kind of like oh yeah this happened too you know it was it was sort of the opposite of a of like a emotional outburst to him it was just sort of part of you know who he was but yeah in general it's it's people are pretty like pretty measured and there's it's not really like an outpouring of sob story type thing it's it's very i find so far people have been just very matter of fact about their situation and a lot of them remarkably you know positive and and shown just tremendous resilience considering their situation so that's um that's really shocking. I feel like sometimes I'm trying to get people to complain, like, wow, that must be really tough. And then they're like, well, you just get on with it, don't you? Well, that must be the journalistic impulse, right, to yeah. go for the, the heart of the story. Yeah, definitely. Um, but with this project, um, twice I've had situations where 
you know, the story has told itself. One woman, um, she's she was actually involved in an accident three days after I, we did the interview. She's um, disabled and and essentially was um, hit by a car. Uh, crossing the street in London, and during our interview, we had talked a lot about her um, her struggle with getting around, and you know, getting hit by the door when she's getting off the bus, and people not like giving her their seat when she's on the bus. She has a she has a walker, so for the for then for her to be involved in this accident three days later was just like the story literally told itself before I could even get it up on on the blog so with her you know uh there was a bit of a question about what do i do i do i you know do i used it and she hadn't signed the release form which is um our procedure a, a week at least after the interview we have we reiterate or i reiterate like what we're doing and if it's okay and they sign a release form so she hadn't done that yet and um a friend of hers and of mine and the co-editor of the blog helped me sort of we we went to go visit her in the hospital and um made sure that you know it got first got an update on the story which was great from from the blog's perspective but also like that she was still okay with it and she uh she she managed to sign the the paper with her with her other hand because she she had hurt her collarbone so it was um i knew i definitely knew she was okay with it because she went to great lengths to sign the papers yeah, right, that's a high bar to entry yeah. by anyone's standards what's the, what's the overall purpose of this the, the sort of the, the what's the big picture here with the the blog mm, um i just i really believe in giving a voice to um people who aren't generally who don't generally have one so uh why, why do you want to do that I don't know. I guess it's just this internal uh, uh, sense of justice, and I, I feel like that's. I feel like I, the only way I can contribute to that is by helping people. I have the means to share people's stories. I'm, you know, I'm in the media. I have. I I know how to blog. I know how to pitch stories. I know how to do all those things. Um, so it doesn't even take that much for me to do something like this. And I, it's a natural. I suppose skill and um, something I enjoy. So, it, to me, when you can combine doing something you enjoy with like making even a small contribution, that just seems like the right thing to be doing. Now, instinctively, I'm sure anybody listening would recognise those aims. At the same time, I'm still not quite sure I understand the the sort of the tangible goal that you're going after okay. by doing this. Okay. Well, it's more specifically. Um, I just see this sort of disconnect, uh, particularly in East London. You know, it's this really vibrant cultural place. And uh, on Kingsland Road or Stoke Newington High Street, where we're sitting right now, every week there's a new coffee shop and a new fashion pop-up and a new bar. And all these all these places have, you know, great blogs and Twitter feeds and these social media tools that are so amazing and that you can use to, like, run a business and, you know as to to have a fan base but i don't i don't see see so many people using those same tools to do things that are sort of not um not as self-serving i guess so uh using the blogging format to do this was something that i like the juxtaposition of this like very sort of you know new media format interviewing people who generally don't know what a blog is so um a lot of times I sort of have to, uh, I show them on my phone when I'm explaining what it is or 
Um, you know, but these aren't people who use Tumblr and Twitter, so it's not intuitive to them what exactly they're like, oh, so it's going to be published. It's like, well, yeah, kind of. It's not on paper, but it's, you know, so that I wanted to use the the um, infrastructure of sort of young, hip East London, which is blogging and Twitter, and use it to do something that young, hip East Londoners aren't really paying that much attention to. So there's an integration aspect going yeah, on Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I've noticed since volunteering here is that I'll walk down the street, um, Kingsland Road, and, and I'll see service users. So, you know, I have, I have good facial recognition, so I, I will, I'll recognize them, you know, almost every week I'll see one. And um, they usually don't see me. And, and they probably would recognize me in the context of being here at St. Paul's where we have the, um, the drop-in center. But on the street, they don't. Be- and I, I was talking to Lucy, our chef, about this, and she asked me if I, if, I re- if I saw service users, and she's like, but they don't see you, do they? And we think it's because we tend to see people that are like us. So I might see people that are, you know, dressed in something that I like or who are who just look like someone I might be interested and friends with. And someone like me might not see the guy sitting on the bench or asking for money or just not doing something they would be doing. And I think it works both ways. Mm-hmm. So um, service users see other people like them, but they don't look at you know, people like me. And that's something that I find is very specific to this part of town. You, know, you have a lot of immigrant communities. You have... You have the like young professional hipster crowd, and you have, and it's just this like crazy melding. But it's it's not that integrated. So I, I on a personal level, wanted to do something that helped me get to know my neighborhood more, and um, and sort of understand how we can integrate things more. So the the blog is like the crossover, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so that seems particularly important in the light of some of the political issues and social issues that have come up um, perhaps around or oh, I don't know the EDL taking tea at a mosque and, and so forth where it's that moment where people actually stop and talk and engage mm-hmm. with individuals from across whatever divide they perceive there to be mm-hmm. that's the moment where perhaps the, the, the fabric of society knits together a little more closely yeah yeah I find that the longer I've lived in places where there's diversity, the more uh, uncomfortable I am when I'm in a place where everyone looks like me. So um, I think the more we can get people to engage, like you said, to engage with people that that aren't like them, whether they're homeless or from Nigeria or from Turkey, um, the, just the less we'll have these just really extreme, you know, factions of because you can't you can't. Um, you cannot be afraid of something if you if you know it, you know. Or rather, the fear comes from not knowing it. So, um, in this situation, like it's so clear to me that just that getting people to engage is kind of the answer. It's not easy, but it certainly it helps a lot. I think this ties in very much with the new media world that we now inhabit. Whereas previously, the the microphone or the soapbox was the preserve of a, a small elite I suppose you'd say now we've all got the tools to communicate as you've been discussing and the sheer volume of communication is just so overwhelming that we find ourselves really just going to a few voices amongst that that we that we trust everything else by recommendation and by personal contact and I guess that 
ties back in, doesn't it, where, where you've got this mass of humanity swirling around the, the East End, then sometimes it is important to make a personal contact and mm-hmm. to, to you know get in touch with somebody like yourself who's prepared to listen and uh, put that story back out there. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things as a sort of um, a journalist building my career and um some i've heard this time and time again it's it's simultaneously the worst and best time to be an emerging journalist because there there is no barrier to entry so Mm -hmm. 10 years ago i could not have started a project like this you know this took very little um very it took no money it took no it i made the blog in a day i collaborated with lucy who's our, our amazing illustrator um and these are things that you know 10 years ago i would have needed gatekeeper as we call them I would have needed someone to to say like okay you can do this project so yeah I mean yes it it is maybe harder to get as many just the sheer volume means less people might read some of the things you do but um I don't really think that matters to be honest I mean I think I think with new media the, the the stuff that that's good has a way of of finding its way to the top you know and and this project is a really slow build. These interviews take a long time to set up and they take a long time to actually come to fruition. And that's something that's kind of frustrating to me because I'm such a practitioner of new media. So I'm, you know, I, on my personal Tumblr, I'm blogging every single day, lots and lots of things. But this, I wanted to keep really pure and I wanted to keep it just, just the Q&As, nothing else. And um, it's, you know, if nothing else, when it, when it, if and when it's done, it's it's a body of work that I can point to, and um, you know, it doesn't really matter to me how many people are are reading it because I just know that it's that it has integrity, and and the subjects who are interviewed they like it. <laughs> so, well, that seems extremely uh, tr- what you're saying about the about quality rising is, is self evident. I think I can tell from talking to you that you're not particularly interested in blowing your own trumpet. You'd much rather blow the trumpet of the projects you're working with. All the same, uh, I'm going to blow your trumpet. You, you graduated what uh, 2011, something like that, and already you're writing for uh, and have been writing for a huge number of publications. You write on sort of ecological issues and women's issues and things like that. How do they find their way into your work here? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, those things seem to find a way into everything that I do. So at NLAH, which is how we shorten North London Action to the Homeless, we try really hard to um, recycle, repurpose, and um, divert food waste as much as we can. So we have you know, Turkish uh, bakeries that give us bread every week. Whole Foods gives us food. We have several farms that give us um, their produce that sort of, you know, they give us what has to be used that day. And then Lucy is fantastic at coming up with, you know, amazing recipes of of how to use, you know, a box full of beetroot an hour before 80 people arrive to eat it. Um, So she's, um, that's something that I I really like about the project is that not only is it feeding people, but it's actually preventing a lot of stuff from going to waste twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays when um, there are meals. So I, I, I hate food waste more than anything in the world. So that's, that's one thing that I really like about this project. Well, you're probably in a great position to give us a, a stat or two on that front. What, what sort of proportion of our food goes to waste? Oh, gosh, I, I wish I could. Uh, it's, it's a ridiculous number of food. I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's not half, but it's like somewhere around a third to a half. Yeah, I, th- I think I've heard a third, yeah. Yeah, 
of our food that that goes to waste and um i mean you just you just see it everywhere you see it you know you see it in in when you go to tesco at the end of the day and you see the reduced food and you know that if that doesn't get bought it's you know it's being thrown away um and it's also really arbitrary the the system of how we date food it's largely at least in the U.S., um, I'm not sure if this is the case here, there aren't actually any laws governing sell-by dates. So it's just a matter of food retailers not wanting to sell food that's slightly, you know, not as fresh as day one because then someone might think, oh, well, that market doesn't sell fresh food. I'm not going back there. Um, Well, and there's the whole litigation aspect, no doubt, as well, that they want to be uh, well clear of. Especially in America. So, um, And in a lot of cases... The missing link, the reason why food gets wasted is because no one steps in to say, hey, I need your food and I'll come pick it up. Or, hey, if you put that in a box, can we can we come get it every Tuesday or something? That, work, that works on a local level. What about with some of the bigger retailers? I mean, it does, it does work on a local level, but that's because the small shop owner and the small, you know, the volunteer from the small charity are communicating. If a big market wanted to do the same thing, I think they probably could. It would just take, you know, a little bit of organization and effort. And, you know, we do get some donations from, uh, we, as I said, Whole Foods and some other bigger retailers, which I think is really great. And, and as well as we get a lot of donations from um, businesses and people who come on our website and see what we need. We get, there's a, an Indian family that actually cook curry and rice once a month, like a massive amount. And so once a month, uh, we don't actually have to prepare the main course because they just do that completely for, for free. They're not volunteers or anything. They just turn up. I just want to say, if anybody hasn't had the, uh, the, the delight of a home-cooked Indian meal... <laughs> yeah. Oh, you've got to try it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and any restaurant, I mean, not to do down the, the many fantastic curry houses, but there's nothing like a home-cooked yeah. Indian meal. And they even bring papadoms, so you just can't beat it. <laughs> While we've been talking, by the way, the, the, the aroma of uh, fried onions, I think I can smell in the mix there, but a lovely smell is wafting in from the kitchen. We, we came through earlier. Do you know what's on the menu today? I don't. I didn't get a chance to look, but usually, um, oh, all of our meals here are, are vegetarian, so I, I can tell you that, that that's... Uh, I'll forgive you. <laughs> we do three courses, so there's always a soup to start, and then um, a main course, which is you know either a pasta or a curry um, or baked omelet or something of that uh, variety, and then a dessert. Why only veggie? It's definitely um, cheaper to serve... Um, a large quantity of people and um it's 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 more ecological and you know probably easier to get donations that way but i can tell maybe you're not the hugest fan of vegetarianism and some of our volunteer i mean some of our service users feel the same way <laughs> Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. We've been talking about people who've experienced homelessness, people who've been in contact with, maybe still are homeless, maybe are on the other side of it, um, but are still affected by it. Unfortunate fact is that the abiding image that many people will have of homeless people is that portrayed by people who come and, and beg. Mm-hmm. 
quite often quite clearly on drugs or drink mm. all sorts of scams go on we know that in um, east london you'll often be approached by people who are, are selling uh, stories that are clearly rubbish you know we, we know that and yet this is sort of one of the, the chief interfaces between what people perceive of as the, the homeless community and the rest of the population how does that feature in the sort of stories that you've been collecting and wh- what do you do about the the, the truth of that situation or the lack of truth sometimes Mm. yeah that's a great question for the blog subjects so far um a lot of them if you saw them walking down the street you wouldn't think they were they were homeless or have been homeless one of our subjects was stevie he was um very much on the cusp of almost sleeping rough again the week i interviewed him um the Hackney Winter Night Shelter, where he'd been staying, which is hosted at a different parish every night of the week, um, November through March, uh, was closing. And we had that we had that cold spell in March. Uh, it was right around that time, you know, snowing in March. And he um, he, for various reasons, which you can read about on the blog, couldn't get housing benefit. And uh, so, you know, we talked very frankly about like what he was going to do <laughs> if you know it was literally in two days. It was going to be decided if he was going to find somewhere or if he was going to be sleeping rough again. So that whole experience of really talking to people who that's their reality really just completely changed my view on walking down the street. And I can't I can't not notice uh, those types of people now and sort of wonder what they're dealing with and and understanding how it works a little bit more has has almost helped me in those situations i was on the uh, overground this week and some guy was talking about how he needed x amount of pounds to go to the shelter and it's like i'm pretty sure shelters don't charge so i don't i don't know you know and i told him it was wednesday so it was on my way to volunteer and i said look there's a free meal at St. Paul's in Hackney, um, we were very we were close to to Hackney on the on the overground. So um, that's you know it's something it's something that you're just more aware of from knowing the reality of this lifestyle. And I always look for ways to you know rather than give give someone just straight money, like suggest they go somewhere or give them food if I have it, you know. Um, and I think that's something that anyone can do. I mean, whether they're an addict or not, or whether they well, that's even that, you know, people are an addict because they don't, they don't have a better option a lot of times. So, um, but you know, you hear people say like, oh, I wish that person would just get a job or sitting in that same spot every day outside of Tesco is not that productive. It's like, well, you know, it takes so little from your life to just buy one extra thing in the store or just like give them something that you bought or it's just, to me, it's just a no brainer, you know, um, because, because you just, you just don't know where they're coming from ever. I think it's really underestimated because what you know, unless we really stop and read some of the stories on the the, the blog, which we haven't, by the way, name checked in detail yet. We haven't given a URL. We better sort that out immediately. Okay, so the blog is called Three Course Story, um, and the the URL is literally Three Course Story. Spell out the the um, three dot okay we'll be we'll give that again before the end um i think what a lot of people don't realize is because we're, we're used to having stuff mm-hmm. we're used to having excess we're, maybe we've got a car in a garage maybe we've got a garage maybe we've got a home we've got the uh, mud cons mm-hmm. washing machine or access to those things crucially we've got uh, people around us in some capacity or another take all that stuff away mm-hmm. and suddenly the the slightest thing becomes uh, an enormous burden doesn't it yeah. you know like if you get rained on you've got to do something about that and 
and you've got no way of getting warm because there's no way you can go inside. People don't want you uh, in their their shop or their mall or whatever because you smell, mm-hmm. for example. And and on such a slight personal hygiene issue, suddenly you you've got to stand out in the cold, in the wet. Uh, you know, just just that, for example. Take that um, storage. You can't keep anything anywhere because you've got nowhere to keep it. So you've got to carry stuff around. That's heavy. It's going to get waterlogged as well, sleeping bags, etc. So do you hide stuff? You know, as soon as you take away all the structures around you and then think how you would actually survive, it's it's a very unkind world. Yeah, and and not only that, the the criminalization of the lifestyle itself. You know, you you can't have stuff. You can't stay in one place that's dry. Someone will tell you to move, you know. It's illegal to squat. It's all these things that it's... It's like, it's hard enough to live in London. Anyone who lives in London knows if you're out of your flat the whole day, you get home and you're just destroyed, you know, from relentless movement and and just pressure. And these people never get that feeling where they walk in at the end of the day, a lot of them. So um, Stevie, the the subject I was just mentioning, who was almost sleeping rough, he he ended up getting a flat, like, right at the 11th hour. And... um, he told me during our interview, like, all I want is a place to stay dry. Like, it's that simple. Um, and, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm from California, so I am not, I'm not the most adapted to, to cold weather. But doing this project throughout the winter, I was just never, I, I never even thought about complaining about the, the temperature or the cold because I always have somewhere to go get warm, you know, and and. God, even on on cold nights here on on you know on Wednesday evenings when we serve like it's always busier on cold really cold nights and it's obvious why because it's not just a place to come eat it's a place that's that's warm if there were a sort of a takeaway message and of course this is all about talking and getting getting in deep what was it you called the Q&A's long form long form Q&A's yeah okay so really uh, that's the way to start understanding the experiences that we're talking about here and i'm going to ask you some more about one or two of those in just a moment but if there was a sort of a headline for the listener to take away about mm-hmm. i guess what you've learned from the the project so far what would that be i suppose it would be don't assume anything don't assume you know why someone's sitting outside of tesco don't assume that you know why someone is spending the money they just panhandled to buy you know three cans of cider like just just don't assume it because because if you if you spoke to that person it's it's likely your 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 jaw would drop if you found out what they're dealing with or what they've dealt with or what the kind of constraints they've been under for their you know in the recent future or for their whole life so don't assume anything but also you know try to engage i mean it's kind of there's certainly times when it's not appropriate to do that but a lot of homeless people just want to be looked in the eye or given a smile so if you don't feel like giving someone money like just just say no sorry I don't have any and actually look at them and and treat them like what they are which is a human being and we just are so um we're so tough in cities you know we just you you have to be but it's also kind of it prevents you from just like helping someone out and then also if someone you know, if someone's selling the big issue or someone's doing something that's it, they're they're clearly showing that they're they're being proactive. You know, you don't someone doesn't just hand you the big issue to sell. You have to like actually be responsible and get involved with that. Like buy that, even if you're not going to read it. You know, or just or just give them money because they're they're trying. You know, 
Yeah, right. If, you, if you're one of those people who uh, wants people to get off their backside and, and get a job, then surely the, the follow-through on that argument is when you see somebody yeah. who's, who's attempting to be entrepreneurial, support that. Yeah, absolutely. And just don't just don't assume you know where people are coming from because you probably don't. <laughs> it's true. One of the one of the misconceptions I think around booze and homelessness. I think that a lot of people perceive that uh, people drink and, and probably drank before, and that's why they're homeless. And there's, that's not without a grain of truth for sure. Mm-hmm. But they see people sort of getting ready to sleep in the park or whatever with the booze, and they think that one is a consequence of the other. But of course, you could turn that around very easily because it's actually a lot easier to sleep in a public place if you if you're drunk. Yeah, no, it's very hard to determine um, with both addiction and mental illness if, if you know, what is the cause? Is the addiction or mental illness the cause of the homelessness or is the homelessness a cause of an effect? Of, you know, it's, it's very hard to determine that and oftentimes I don't think there is a clear-cut answer. Um, if you have slight mental illness and you're not getting the support you need and you're not receiving the care, then that's going to maybe push you on the street and then you're, you know, you're really going to be struggling and your illness may get worse. So um, it's, it's really hard to tell those things. Um, one of the things from doing this, though, that has been a sort of slight grain of uh, optimism in stories that are often pretty upsetting is just that all of these people can get uh, medical care. So... Um, you know, I'm American, and that's not the case in America. So, for example, Stevie's um, the one that almost slept rough. He was ill, is ill, and and is but is getting care, and that's that's um, you know really important and sort of part of the reason why he got his housing sorted. And then um, you know, Diane, I mentioned who was was hit by a car. She was she was receiving care right away, and it's just at least at the very least, it it gives me a lot of. Um, relief at the end of the day to know that you know she's in that she was in that hospital but she's not going to like go into lifelong debt because of it because in my country that would very likely be the case or they just wouldn't be there in the hospital so I think that's important to point out you brought us on to Diane and well we could sketch out the landscape in brief perhaps as regards gender and homelessness and tell me where I'm getting any of this wrong but broadly speaking homelessness is much more a male issue in terms of there being many more men who find themselves homeless particularly from the armed forces and so forth particularly because men are often the ones ejected from a familial situation Uh, but there's also the much greater arguably dangers for uh, women and, and the very young but particularly women who often have the very young with them that they need to look after as well obviously risk of exploitation and of course uh, women are very often sort of invisibly homeless because they have to be in order to um, uh, to to stay as safe as possible so that's sort of the broad landscape you're nodding what what about the fine detail of that how does your sort of specialist thoughts in terms of of gender how does gender play into these issues i'm glad you brought that up um so that the truth of what you just said is very much reflected here um at st paul's in the dining room so it's about 80 percent men on any given day that we serve maybe even a little bit more um And yeah, I think another reason in addition to the ones you stipulated is that women tend to get priority from um, the state. So it's I think it's easier to get um, housing if you're or emergency shelter, even if you're a woman with children. It's rare that you'll see a woman with children sleeping on the on the street. That's sort of a hard one for me. I wish that um, I could speak to more women here about about their experiences. We've actually only had one. The next subject's going to be a woman. Um, 
it is harder to to find them here and to get them to agree to speak to me. Um, are, there, are those two separate issues? Clearly, there are, there's a, a smaller pool to draw stories from. But do you find them more resistant to talking about it? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Uh, but you know, maybe, maybe, yeah. It, it, the main problem is just that they're not here. So, um, we, you know, a lot of a lot of services are women specific in the sort of like charity realm. So I think you know that's that's part of the reason why there's there's a service here for sex workers um, once a week where they can come and get clothing or or shower. And I think I think there's a meal as well. Um, so it's just it's just a matter of circuit. And also at NLEH, generally children um, aren't allowed here just because uh, it's not always the best environment for children to be here um, because there's often people who might be under the influence of, you know, alcohol. Um, we, we obviously there's a there's a sort of limit for that. You're, you you are welcome here if you've been drinking, but you can't drink while you're here. That's sort of the rule. So yeah, the fact that women generally take care of children and children aren't really um, this isn't a space for them. That's you know why they're not here as well. Isn't it weird that we allow them in pubs so frequently though? <laughs> what about I mean in in terms of gender? What about your gender? Because. I mean, I'm sort of imagining, as you say, you're talking to a lot of men who th- this is their first opportunity in a while to be listened to. And we know that whole thing of uh, patients falling in love with their nurse. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the relationship can be more intense than you're expecting? Um, I'm really glad you asked that question. And and you mentioned that I write a lot about women's issues. And a lot of that just comes or a lot of my desire to write about that has come from my own experience of being like a young working journalist. And um, there's actually a Tumblr called Said to Lady Journos, which is anonymous submissions from female journalists about sexism and misogyny that they've experienced while working. Um, and so in the case of this project, um, I'm definitely aware of how, you know, if, if I feel, and this has happened, I'm obviously not going to um, be too specific about it, but if I feel like someone is speaking to me because they think I'm flirting with them or vice versa, then I won't do the interview. So um, I'm a kind of a smiley person. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I could maybe see why, you know, someone would would take that as, as uh, you know, flirtation or just being overly friendly. But I, I know what's up and I know when something is, is has crossed the line, even in a subtle way. I'm definitely friendly with the people. And it's an interesting project because normally as a journalist, you don't see your subjects after you interview and write about them. Like they're in your past. You may keep in touch, but with this project, I see them every week. So not only is it super important that they like what I wrote and that they're comfortable with it, but you know, it's an ongoing friendship or, or connection that I have with the people that I interview. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very explicit both with in my own mind and with the organizers here that, um, I don't do any interviews if I feel like my my gender or my like age or you know what I look like or any of those things are the part of the reason why someone has is agreeing to do it. Um, how, how do you go if you get that suspicion midway through an interview? How do you go about handling that? Um, I would probably finish the interview. I just wouldn't use we just wouldn't use it. I just wouldn't publish it. The managers here are very good about telling the female volunteers. To, to say something if they're ever uncomfortable um, and there's definitely you know they will they will deal with that so if I if I were 
I've never felt that that uncomfortable that I needed to go down that road. But um, but yeah, I just I just wouldn't use the interview because I because it's really important to me that this um, this has a lot of journalistic integrity. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Now, I know you've got help on the blog from your your first subject, Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Grant is a lot of the reason why the blog started. Basically, one day uh, at dinner, he introduced himself to me and asked me what I did. And I told him I was a writer. And he said, hey, I'm a writer, too. So um, his story, in, in brief, is that um, he got hired by a social enterprise company in Hackney called Poached Creative. And they are sort of a media company that train unemployed people in you know, writing and media and communications. So um, he found a great amount of success with that. And he's, you know, he writes for the Hackney Citizen and he maintains a blog about um, unemployment and and benefits issues and stuff. So I I sort of told him I had this idea and and he really liked it. And I said, well, do you want to be the first subject? And um, so that was like the trial run. And that went well, and then um, since he really knows the community here well, he's been here coming here for ten years, and he's also been a volunteer later on, and he's actually on the board, the committee, um, sort of representing the uh, standpoint of service users. He just is a good person to have in my corner because oftentimes he can, if people know like oh, she's friends with Grant, then it just gives me a little more credibility. And he um, he also reads every... He's the only person that reads the, the copy before it gets published. So he's kind of like my editor, which um, gives me a lot of peace of mind. And he's... Um, you know, he, he asks me questions and makes me think of things that I wouldn't normally think of and always makes sure that uh, I'm sensitive to, you know... Um, or you know, I always am sensitive to to the situation, but he he just makes he makes me even more so because he knows things that I couldn't possibly know. You mentioned the managers there, and maybe finally, and, and perhaps tying in the idea of a network, which seems from my sort of uh, not merely casual observation of issues around homelessness it seems to me that the commonality amongst people who've experienced homelessness is the lack temporary or otherwise of a support network a family network a friendship network whatever it might be there's just no one there for them at the point that they need there to be someone which by default i guess becomes you guys um to to whatever extent who's here how many people um how does it work um so the i believe the paid staff is um that are here on a sort of weekly basis are just two, and that's Lucy, um, our chef. She's very impressive, and her food is delicious on a regular basis. Um, She's also the illustrator for the blog, and generally the biggest selling point to service users of how I get them to agree, because everyone... Because I show them past illustrations she's done. And of course, service users know other service users because it's a big community here. So we'll be like, yeah, this is the drawing she did of Grant. This is Arthur. And they're like, I want that. I want someone to do that of me. Um, so that's Lucy. And then um, Mike is the manager. There's also Radu, who's a, he's like the Eastern European outreach um, 
person because we have a lot of Polish and Eastern Europeans here. Yes, I've noticed. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I think I think that's just a, a big immigrant community around here. And like we were just talking about, it's generally all men because they come here for work, I think. So, and like I said, you don't have to be homeless to come here. So, you know, it, it literally could be you just want a hot meal and you're short on cash. And it's, you know, it's like a, it's also like a great community. Everyone's always talking. It's very vibrant. It's not at all, you know, stoic and quiet. And, and it's, it's very, it's a kind of a fun place to be. The, the blog really came together when the illustration aspect took shape because I think that photographs would be too invasive for a project like this. And if you notice on the blog, we only use first names. Um, and I often tell, I've never done it, but subjects can change their names if they if they were to request it. So the, the illustration, not only are they just so cool and so unique in their style, but they also um, just give a certain respectful veil to the subject which I think is really important. And they, they're just, the likeness that she's able to get is kind of ridiculous from just a pretty low-quality iPhone snapshot that I take. So, And, of course, only you will know exactly how close it is, yeah. but uh, people can judge the, yeah, the quality, of course, of the, of the pictures and yeah. read some of those interviews. Uh, we'll, we'll give that URL again. Yeah, so it's threecoursestory.tumblr.com, and you spell out the number three. And you spell Tumblr in that strange way that Tumblr uh, decides to do it without the E right. before the end of the word. And uh, what else have you got going on online if people wanted to see more of your... My work? Um, yeah, so my blog is rojospinks.tumblr.com. R-O-J-O, Spinks is S-P-I-N-K-S. Well, the perfume of dinner is now overwhelming. From St. Paul's West Hackney, Rosie Spinks, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Rosie Spinks. Thanks too to Becca Evans and Bernie Barkley. The theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolf. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 